which I realized during the reportage, I can simply just catch because there is something very interesting happening there. And I want to record that that aspect versus looking at everything as a watercolor challenge, literally. And welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. On this show, I speak with people around the world who draw or paint their environments from observation. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Zainab Tambawala, an artist, illustrator, and animator living in Mumbai, India. I have always been curious to learn what attracts different people to urban sketching and what they find in this practice that benefits them. With this episode, I try to learn what it can offer to someone who already draws for a living and has been drawing their entire life. I want to see if urban sketching can be a medium to observe, to capture and to tell stories. Can we use it to show a world that does not otherwise receive enough attention? Big cities are fascinating to me in this way, in that every big city has worlds within other worlds. Sometimes they intersect, but often they exist completely separate from each other. These worlds can be separated by things such as social class and privilege, or economic and professional circles. But urban sketching, through the associated act of sitting down in a place that you don't know, to observe your surroundings over an extended period of time, offers us a glimpse into worlds other than our own. This is the subject of my conversation today with Zainab. Recently, Zainab completed a reportage project entitled Spirit of Mumbai, in which she documented the work and the life of artisans and craftspersons in Mumbai city. She made quick, spontaneous drawings of them at work and detailed their stories about work and life and the hardships of the past two years. Today's episode is supported by the wonderful members of the Sneaky Art Podcast who buy me coffee every month to keep this show running. So thank you, Becky, Ruth, Melanie, Vinayakam, Anne, Mark, Russ, Sanket, Santosh, Dinah, Megan, Mark, Etienne, Carl, Deborah, Emma, Martha, Ellen, Blake, Martha, Ashley, Kate, Mike, Molly, Melanie, and Hendrico. I am truly glad to have so many wonderful subscribers and members who support my work. As an independent podcaster, the support of listeners is integral to my work and also a valuable source of ideas for future episodes. Every month we do a Zoom hangout to talk about the latest episodes and share our thoughts. You can be part of this too. If you like the show and if you enjoy this episode, find the link in the show notes to buy me a coffee. It's just that simple. Buy me a coffee and take the opportunity to start a conversation. Tell me about what you liked and what you would like to hear more of. A cup of coffee is a great way to start a conversation and a simple way to support independent work. So, we begin today's episode with Zainab's fantastic reportage project and all the things that she learned doing it. We talk about her life's journey with art, from being a student of applied art to working in the animation industry, and then the transition she took to becoming a freelancer. We discuss how urban sketching entered her life at a critical juncture and has inspired her to try new styles and to pursue new artistic goals. We speak about urban sketching as an act of record keeping in a fast changing city. And on that note, let's begin. 
Good evening, Zainab, and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I am absolutely delighted to speak with you, and I look forward to talking to you about so many wonderful things that you're doing. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Zainab, I heard about you from a lot of uh, people who listen to my show, and they told me about the work you do, and that's kind of how I found out about your Instagram, and I looked at your work. But recently, and I feel like maybe it took me too too long to discover it. But recently, I came across the reportage work that you've done with uh, artists and craftsmen and artisans in Mumbai, and it's absolutely fascinating to me. So I have a whole bunch of questions to you about that, and I would love to start to talk to you from that subject onwards. Sure. So, um, yeah. So uh, briefly. covering the things that you uh, speak about in this project you spoke to six different kinds of crafts uh, craftsmen people who follow six different kinds of uh, trades there were basket weavers people doing embroidery work for dresses there were sculptors goldsmiths potters and wood carvers so i guess the most imp- uh, first question that i really want to ask you is how did you hear about these artisans did did the research for this begin uh because you were formulating a reportage proposal or was it something you were already interested in from before so um yes it was it was because i was formulating a reportage proposal and originally when i actually submitted the reportage proposal it wasn't about the artisan it was basically about regular people in mumbai reinventing themselves during the covid time okay and i think that is really the spirit of the city when nobody really accepts defeat and wants to you know see what else they can do and push themselves to see you know like to just let that time tide by or you know just be able to overcome that little difficulty that comes their way and that is that is the amazing part of the city and the amazing you know the the just just the 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 drive that people have you know in the city um when i submitted that proposal that proposal had a wood carver and it had a tailor and it had a uh, you know one of one of the people who sells uh, toys on the street i had submitted a proposal with three such stories and uh, it and the the wood carver the tailor uh and the mobile toy owner the stories had really touched me and especially the wood carver who did not flinch you know he he did he did some he, you know he just basically made sure that for the time of the lockdown he just had enough money to feed his family and then with great focus he just came back to work and that story was so inspiring that i submitted that as a part of the proposal and uh when i submitted that and urban sketchers uh wrote back to me they wanted me to cover craftsmen i guess they took the cue from the wood carver and thought i should explore craftsmen now um if you really think of mumbai you don't think of craftsmen because you are mumbai is like literally like a day to day struggle you know and no one no one no one really associates mumbai with craftsmen but i but i said okay let me take a step back and let me find out really are there any craftsmen in the city 
because you really hear of craftsmen in Gujarat, Rajasthan, you know, up north, all these places are famous for their craftsmanship, right? But nobody associates Mumbai with craftsmanship. So I said, let me take a, let me just take a step back and let me make a list of how many crafts I can actually find within the city. And I, and I got like a good list of like almost 11 odd crafts. Okay, but I wanted to tap into those which are integral to the city. So which are basically like really speak about the city as well. You know, so which is why then I narrowed down on the six that I chose. Yeah, like for example, the sculptor is making uh, sculptures of uh, Lord Ganesh. Right. And uh the, even the 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 wood carver is making uh, these temples for people's homes the little structures in which people put their their own gods the statues so how did you how did you do this research like how did you go about finding these 11 crafts and uh making contact with specific people how did how was that process so um i think uh, yes i had to i had to sort of first make a make a rough list of what i wanted to do and i had to find people within like uh, fortunately i have friends who are who who have been working with craftsmen so i connected with them and they sort of put me in touch with the craftsmen now for example the woodworker you know the woodworker is just a street where a, a whole bunch of shops are doing woodworking. So there would not be any connect required there. But if I had to go to the potter, I would need a connect. Because uh, the potter, you know, his studio is enclosed. So his workspace is enclosed. And it's not very easy to just barge in and say, I'm here to sketch. Whereas the woodcarver, I'm actually sitting on the road and sketching. So it doesn't really matter to anyone. But for the potter, I would need to be in a space for which I would need to have a contact who would allow me in. For the embroiderer, I, I mean, I, would I, I know the pockets where embroidery gets done, but people are very hesitant about just letting a stranger in and especially doing some kind of documentation because there are a lot of dynamics involved in that. You know, sometimes they feel you're a threat to their space or their craft. Sometimes they feel that you're making money on this, but not giving them anything. So there are so many levels of insecurities that come into the picture. So without a connect, I, it would be almost impossible to step into someone's workspace. So fortunately, yes, I had friends help me and that worked out. So uh, now you make you connect with somebody who's doing this work and you don't know them. So what do you like what do you do to communicate what you're trying to do with them how do you get them to open up to you because you've shared also in the comments in your Instagram post you've shared very personal stories they've told you about where they've come from about like so many of the trades are like family uh, passed down inherited trades skills that have been inherited from parents and some people have left home left uh, their old lives behind to do this so how how do you like how was that process? Like, are you speaking to them before and then drawing afterwards? Do you speak to them while you're drawing? How do you earn their trust for them to be intimate with you in this way? So if I'm in their space, if I'm in their space, I had to explain to them what I was doing. Okay. So for the, for the embroiderer, for the potter, I needed to, for the sculptor, I needed to tell them exactly what I was doing. Okay. And why I was doing what I was doing. 
and uh, that's the only way they said okay you know and i showed them a little bit of what i i like my sketchbook and stuff like that and that's the way they they sort of said okay you know you do what you have to do i mean we have no objection to you being here or doing you know drawing really anything uh with the wood carvers i was basically i started sketching because i was sitting on the street and then as i was sketching and they started looking at me sketching and realized oh you know this is interesting then they started opening up and telling me more about themselves so i think the 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 dynamic in both these things is very different like you know even with with the basket weavers so the with the basket weavers i had to go and meet them one one day earlier and uh, tell them that you know i may want to come here and sketch and a lot of people have basically documented the basket weavers uh, stories and even you know just their uh, just their lifestyle and stuff like that have come in several uh, in several news articles so they are very familiar with people coming to just speak to them and you know things like that so they were like they thought i was one of one of those you know who would come with a camera and you know but i i so i didn't say anything i left it at that and then when the next day i i just went and i i said uh, you know you need to just continue doing what you are doing and i will do what i have to do and uh, only when they saw what i was doing is when they started opening up with stories so initially i had to just tell them that i'm i'm here to sketch you know and once they see the once they see the result of the sketch and they are like you know so full of happiness because you've sketched them uh that's when then they want to tell you more about themselves so with with regards to the potter i i i spent a whole day at his at his workplace and i asked him i said if i had just come here without a connection would you have allowed me in and he said no i would not have you know because he said i don't i don't have the time to sit and you know look after you talk to you all of that he saying but the the reference that you came with uh that person has helped me so much that there was no way i could refuse you right yeah that's so interesting especially like with the basket weavers like you were explaining in your story that their not only their job but a lot of parts of their existence is made illegal in different ways like where they set up their homes where they sell where they even make their baskets so much of it is on the edges of the law and then they are subject to so much harassment so is and like you mentioned they've already been through you know articles and photographers who are i'm assuming maybe snoopy photographers who don't really put them at their ease so what do you think changes when you are drawing instead when you are spending that kind of time uh well for one i think everyone is just you know floored with the fact that they, there is a picture of them now you know because so many people have actually taken photographs that photographs are now you know they're not they're not not so novel anymore right but when they've seen you sketch and they've not just seen you sketch them they've seen you sketch their environment and they're they are literally in awe of that you know that somebody is just recording them with a pen you know and i think that is that is really the thing that warms all these people you know like if i had to just walk into someone's space and 
take photographs, it sort of becomes very impersonal in a lot of ways. But here, when I'm sitting there, I'm observing them. Okay, their children are all around me. Uh, you know, someone saying "sketch me," someone saying "sketch me." You know, someone's pointing me to something interesting that they think I might want to sketch. So it just becomes a very personal interaction. You know, and and the connect with these people also becomes very strong, in a certain sense. Like for example, my wood cover. Okay, uh, when I actually did the wood cover in October, and then I sub- submitted the proposal in November. Um, the wood cover was working at a store, uh, at at someone else's store, right? At someone else's woodworking shop. And when I went back again in in Feb to sketch him, he was not there, and I was a little worried because I wanted to get him again. And, uh, you know, those people in the shop said, oh, he's bought himself a new shop. So they took me to his shop and I didn't even have to tell him that I had sketched him earlier. He was just so happy to see me, you know, and he was so happy to tell me what happened between October and February, which basically enabled him to buy a a whole shop for himself. Okay. And start his craft you know, fresh and work for himself versus working for someone else. You know, so I think that is the connect. Like he, he immediately said, Are up, you came to sketch me, you know, and then he, uh, you know, he, he just wanted to tell me his, the, the, the missing story, which I had missed out for the past few months. And it's such a wonderful story. Like he's uh, tripled his income. Yes. Although, despite going through certain hardships, he took that decision and now he's tripled his income and he's also exporting some of it outside. Yes. And so uh, what you said about, you know, photographs being impersonal, I was, I've was i been thinking about this often with other guests also. So I spoke to a war illustrator in one of my episodes and he was telling me about, we were discussing the difference between somebody who's doing photography in a war zone versus him who is sitting down with paper and making a painting in a war zone. And I guess it's that, you know, photographs have this other connotation now. Maybe they didn't before, but today they do of being Snoopy, of representing someone in a bad light. But we still have a very positive association with anything to do with drawing or art. Like there's always a sense that this is supposed to flatter you or it's supposed to celebrate you. It's not going to denigrate you or take advantage of you in any way. And I'm also thinking that you were spending time with them. That that time component is such a big deal, right? Like photography can be, you can you can take your pictures and get out in five minutes and you don't get that bond that you get when you're sitting there for an hour and actually observing. Yes, I think what you have actually pointed out right now is quite interesting. And um, it also brings another aspect, you know, which I would like to talk about, which is the fact that... Um, the sketch is a representation, you know, whereas the photograph is an actual. And a lot of these people shy away from photographs, especially the women. Uh, you know, they, they, they don't want to be in the photograph. They would rather be, uh, you know, they, they're okay with being in a sketch because there is still like nobody's going to be able to, you know, look at them and say, hey, that's you. I saw you in in you know, so-and-so's reportage proposal, right? 
so I think that is also a very important part of this whole thing because when I when I was sketching these stories in October, you know, I uh, I had I sketched one fisherwoman, and uh, she just simply refused to come into the sketch. And I, the, if you if you go through that that entire series which I did in October, there is only one woman who has who has agreed to be in a sketch in thirty one days of October. Okay, so the the tailor that I sketched, there was a lady tailor right next to him. She just simply shooed me off. You know, so the only the only person who is in that series of October is this lady who is selling uh, you know all these uh, these seasonal things like like the raw mangoes and stuff like that she was sitting by the beach and she said do whatever you want I don't care uh-huh interesting um Another thing that I was thinking about was the the potters' story. So you mentioned that like certain uh, trades, they are by the side of the street, so you know you can anybody can see them, anybody can access them. But certain people have their own uh, closed communities where they produce their work, where they uh, I assume also sort of guard their intellectual property, one could call it. And so they are a little more guarded. And you mentioned, like, it was so interesting to me how these craftsmen are also tied to the history of the city in such interesting ways. So you mentioned that the potters were given a place to live and practice their trade by early Parsi uh, businessmen and philanthropists. And that area then became Dharavi. So how how did, did you uh, did you find out from them about this? What What was it like when they came here? How did it grow into this? other place that like i don't think anybody would associate it with one community anymore yeah so basically dharavi when before it became dharavi okay was on the outskirts of the city okay about 100 years ago it was on the outskirts of the city right so people at that point the the parsi philanthropists wanted the craft to prosper Okay, and which is why they were given these spaces to work. Now, so when they were also given these spaces to work and people came from their from their villages to work in Mumbai, they also got families like, you know, then they would go back and say, you know, hey, there's an opportunity. Why don't you come over? Right now, as that tribe grows, they also need place to stay. And because, you know, land in Bombay is so, so expensive. Uh, they you started using their workspace like their living space as well. And it almost because it was, un, you know, it was unplanned in a certain way is when it started becoming more and more of a slum. And it became like now, now, now what they call it is Dharavi, Asia's largest slum. But but there are pockets of Dharavi which are very unslum like, which is where which is where a whole lot of trade happens. So there, like Dharavi is literally a place where you can find anyone to do anything for you. So you will get potters, you'll get leather tanners, you'll get uh, you know people who work in leather. You will get uh, you know you'll get all sorts of craftsmen there. You'll 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 literally find all sorts of craftsmen there. Yeah, yeah. 
one aspect of this story which was so inter- of these stories which was very interesting was this theme which is also the title of your reportage uh, proposal the spirit of mumbai and how it runs through all of these people some of them are from gujarat some of them are from up some of them have come all the way from the goldsmiths have come from bengal but they are all happy to work in mumbai because of either they are exemplifying this spirit or they are also finding it and they are taking inspiration from it it's so it's like the cause and effect is so mixed up i don't even know like they seem to embody the spirit of mumbai to me and they are also saying that they see it so that's what brings it out in them that's so like through the hardships of lockdown then people working for other employers and finding their own thing it's it's such a like uh, what uh, like looking at their work looking at them doing their things what was something that you learned like as as a person who's also practicing art in various ways was there something you took from them when you watched them just going about their lives i think the lar- the the biggest thing is that 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 what has struck me the most is how hard these people work you know and we sort of take everything for granted and you know while you were while you were talking about this right now i have you know i i used to visit mumbai i i, I used to live in pune i've been born and raised in pune and i used to visit bombay once a year or so to meet my aunt and i clearly remember that you know my mother had a whole lot of relatives she'd want me to meet in that one trip and she would make us walk one stretch you know because everyone was at walking distance but eventually the distance became really you know like like a like a large distance but the thing is that the one the one thing i remember even as a child is that this is too fast you know nobody is bothered nobody is going slow i have to go really fast here you know and when i came to bombay in mumbai in 2000 and i started to experience the city i realized that your people are basically they're queued into your their own business you know they they are so caught up with making ends meet with you know running after what they seek that no one's really bothered you know whether it's you know whether you're boarding a train or you're walking on the street i mean i just feel like there is so much in the city you know and now when i did this reportage proposal you know the whole picture sort of comes together you know because if i if you really look at the city this is the city of migrants right there are very few people who are native mumbaikars right but it is these migrants which make mumbai what mumbai is you know where it's literally a city where you can find anything and i just felt like i felt like if i were to spend every day of my life not doing anything okay but just looking around i would find someone doing something new every day yeah that's so true like even in my short experience uh, wandering around mumbai i felt this way about it that everybody is doing their own thing and it's evident in the way that you're not you can feel like nobody will bother you here you can just do what you want and nobody really is looking because everybody is just wrapped up in their own lives and pursuing their own goals and that's very interesting it's very unlike calcutta in some ways where i grew up because 
you have a lot of conversations with random strangers on the bus and the trains in calcutta because they just want to talk <laughs> I, i i got the feeling that mumbai like nobody's going to just strike up a conversation with you because they are doing their own thing and you do your own thing and that's yes. uh, that was a interesting uh, contrast between the two cities um, looking at these people and uh, the work they're doing and now with covid and like already the business of you know craftsmanship and artisan uh, artisan works in india is like it's tough to say that it's prosperous because i feel like there is so much incredible art here it should be worth billions and billions of dollars but it's clearly not and the people are not making as much money definitely not making as much money as they should be it's not flourishing the way it should flourish what do you like do do these people seem hopeful about how things are going forward do you have some stories of people who have uh, someone succeeding them and they are confident uh, there are some whose children have gone on to do other professions instead and are not interested in the arts anymore so what's the process in which they share or pass down their knowledge you know not just not just their work but also the skill that they have and how do they feel about it going forward it's it's a very good question you know because there were two uh, uh, there were two communities one was the potter uh, one was the sculptor right so the potter had taken over from his father and uh, you know he is doing considerably well uh, and he has children who are striving to go into the corporate world right uh, who who feel that you know there is just too much effort involved in running this trade uh, in sustaining this whole thing and the money that they get is very very little for it right and then there is the sculptor who there were two sculptors who are who i interviewed one clearly said that my son has become a teacher and you know i'm going to shut this business down in in like what a year's time or so the other i met the children as well the children have trained in fine art and sculpting and they the not just the children the wives the the mother all of them are fine artists in some way you know some some uh, some faculty of fine art and they want to keep that legacy going so uh, it is it is very very difficult for the craftsmen at this point in time to sustain their craft and that is really the sad part of this whole thing because everything is taken over by the machine like the woodworker you know he tell he told me when i when i first spoke to him that i am so skilled that i don't need a template to get you a symmetrical design i will be able to get you the symmetry without a template and that is something because these people are doing very very fine work you know it's not very easy to get symmetry without having a prior drawing there you know or some sort of a a, a thing in place which will tell you okay what goes where so imagine his level of skill and in february when i spoke to another wood carver and i asked him why he really does this you know and is there a market for this and he said you know poverty will make you do anything you know so that's what's got me here so he's like if you're hungry you will work and and the discussion just ended there i also i also asked them i said you know in this whole uh, in this whole time at this point in time when people 
rarely really even understand the importance of craftsmanship and things are so readily available i said why do you think people come to you to get something crafted when something can easily be machine made and he said yes there that is true that you know things are getting more and more machine made but the the thing is also that there are these people who know the value of handwork you know so if you look at embroidery you know there is some charm in handwork versus machine embroidery it's it's just i i, I don't know if i can explain it to someone who doesn't who is probably not tuned into it but you know it's like that you you know it it is you've put your heart and soul into doing a piece of work okay and there's just a different charm to the whole thing yeah yeah so true i remember we went on a family trip to jaisalmer and we were looking at stone carvings they do there and again that's a supreme level of skill and i was just thinking at this point because so from my mother's side of the family i'm rajist from rajasthan and her entire family including my mother they're all craftsmen of different kinds my mother makes indian clothes for example so uh, i was thinking about how the nature of artisanship and craftsmanship in india is very uh, very much like a trade it's not it's very little like an art so it remains anonymous even if you are the greatest person at that skill nobody will ever know your name you don't get to sign your name anywhere you don't become famous for oh this potter over here by name you don't become famous as this wood car or stone carver by name that you come to him and therefore you know your worth grows so to say the way we understand how value grows for a certain business and it's so strange like is it something indian that we don't respect that you know that perfectionist perfectionism that comes into crafts and so arts i think that uh, what you what you've brought across right now is a very interesting point okay but there is a certain name okay that name is what gets them the business even if there's no signature on it right because if i have this really gorgeous piece of uh, woodwork in my house you know i will recommend him to someone else right and that is their signature that is that is what happens like if i've gone to a potter who who's worked with you know uh, worked diligently delivered what he needed to you know done everything that i will recommend that potter to someone else you know and i think that that i don't think it's it, it's not looked at as an art because it's very repetitive in a certain sense right there's not one potter there are many potters and there are many potters doing the same thing correct there are many wood but there's just one person with whom your equation fits or you happen to like their correct. work particularly correct because it's this is like i think craftsmanship is something where it needs to be understood by the craftsman it's not something where i can say okay here's the design make it for me and i can cannot just go to anyone and say do it you know i need to know that when i say something he will get it right i don't want to go through the whole piece and then figure out that he won't get it right and i think like you know see it's it's not like 
you won't find woodworking anywhere else. Like the whole of Saranpur is full of woodworkers, right? Uh, and they're equally they're they're equally skilled. All these woodworkers have come from Saranpur, but when they come to Bombay, okay, their skill has gone one notch above. Because of the lack of uh, similar competition. Because no, because it's the price of Bombay. It's the price of Mumbai. It's the price of Mumbai, right? That you will get premium work here. You know, so whatever they're getting paid in their city, they're getting paid much more, which is why they're here. Yeah, yeah, that's such a that's such a good point. I was also thinking ki in India, you know, arts and crafts like this, they are so like we have a very so, so uh, as an as an independent artist, sometimes I have these conversations with other artists about why we are not able to sell art the same way in India versus in the West. It's so much easier to sell in the West. And why that works. So one simple answer that people like to give, and I push against it a little bit, is key Indians are just cheap. We don't want to pay for art. We don't want to value it, etc. And what I think instead is that, you know, we just have a different relationship with art. So we don't, we don't do fine art paintings in our homes so much. Like you could go even to a wealthy family's home and you wouldn't find fine original art on their walls. That's just not, it's not in our psyche. But these arts and crafts are integrated in our life in a lot of ways. So you'll find that art in their bed sheets. You'll find it on their clothes. You'll find it in the weather. You know, sometimes they like, even in super rich houses, you'll have a matki which is of uh, like earthen earthen pot, and they'll be using that, and that will have uh, beautiful embroidery and dis- uh, not embroidery dis- patterns on it. So the way we incorporate art into our lives, sometimes maybe that like a negative side of it could be that it prevents something from being elevated beyond a utilitarian level, even though there is so much skill and, you know, beauty to it. See, I feel that uh, India has always been a very poor country, right? And if I just look at my own family, we have almost made everything at home. Okay. Uh, My mother and my grandmother are ha- are exceptional at what they do you know my grandmother was a seamstress and people used to come to her specially to get things sewn the way they wanted wanted it to be right now in a certain sense i've always grown up with the idea that we can make whatever needs to be made right so why do we need to go buy from someone else when you can make it yourself yeah right right you know so even now I mean, now it's taken me a lot of, uh, you know, it's it's taken me a lot of time to understand that I cannot make everything. You know, I, I, at one point in time, I used to feel I can do every single thing. Like I can even build my own house. I can even stitch my own clothes, grow my food, eat my food, everything. I don't really need any anybody. Right now, I've just started to realize that, yes, it would be better if I saved my energy to do what I was best at doing and let other people do their work. Uh, in a lot of sense, uh, ways, I think like, you know, I always look at something new to do as a challenge, you know, and I want to see the whole thing through. So I, I have not, I have never experienced this 80% thing, but I've always, I've always felt like, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, okay, they're doing this, you know, yes, you can appreciate their work. They're doing a, they're doing a fine job. But I can do it too. 
you know so that i think where that's i think where the uh, i wouldn't call it disrespecting like like let's say for example folk art okay folk art is just extremely rich in its in its you know visuals its understanding and everything right but for to understand folk art you really have to understand the whole background you know versus looking at it as something there is oh a squiggle which i can do as well you know so that is i think where the where the gap comes in right right one aspect of it is actually a very good part which is that we feel empowered to participate in this art making process that you know it's not something that's just left to experts or oh i need art so i have to get an artist i need to do this so i need to get someone who's got this profession i think feeling like i can also make things is a very empowering and positive thing and if we feel that way about our crafts about our arts then on a like there's also a good aspect to this it's a nice thing that people feel capable of indulging or producing things by themselves so um th- i mean if uh, the way i look at it i think that uh, you know in our traditional households it's only now that we have nuclear families right but we've always lived in this whole joint family system and everything gets done because there are just so many people around right and because somebody somebody will have some skill and somebody knows somebody knows how to do something so it's own and even if even if you had to call somebody for a specialized job you would probably know that somebody as an extended family or a neighbor or somebody who you were just very in in very good terms with right and who just came and and fixed it for a fee or whatever but so in that sense i think that that, that entire system which supported handwork or handiwork is sort of disintegrating now you know because there are there are nuclear families uh, you know everyone is is going for you know different kinds of you know are, are pursuing different things so this this whole aspect of you know just just looking within and just just being able to do stuff is i i feel a sort of fading away and i i say this because i have been brought up in a joint family and i have rarely come across in my 23 years that i stayed in that household anything that came from outside you know everything got done within the house yeah that makes a lot of sense um i'm i'm also thinking like you'd mentioned this the word of mouth network right like you would recommend something somebody to someone and that gets interrupted once you're in nuclear families and the channels from which we now how do we find something or oh, we'll google it and these guys are not going to be necessarily on google maps they're not you're not going to find them like that so all of these networks uh, are own uh, homegrown networks get interrupted and we are now therefore sort of at the mercy of google and amazon to get us things instead of knowing somebody who can who knows somebody correct right so um uh, i uh, one specific thing i wanted to ask about this uh, these sketches you did for the reportage is i a lot of your work is in color but these were just uh, drawings why didn't you put color to them uh well one is that um these started as a part of inktober okay 
and my objective clearly was to simply work on composition and i wanted to do it without adding any color because color sort of starts to distract you and then you i at least i forget that oh i'm i need to work on this aspect so i started it only with the intention of working on my composition and i at that point wasn't even sure what i'm going to be sketching i just said okay my i need to work in stark black and white i don't even want the gray so i stepped out uh and uh, the first person i encountered was a bag store so i said okay let me sketch this so just a couple of days and then suddenly i realized that the streets is where i need to be okay and the the tool that i i was using which was the brush pen is actually an amazing tool to be on the streets of mumbai because you you can stand anywhere and sketch you will just uh, you don't need to become like that person who's you know sitting spreading everything out putting out color you'll just be one other person in the crowd nobody knows you're sketching i can just be sitting on a scooter and look like i'm just reading a book and nobody will come to know and the streets are anyway so crowded that there is no way that i'm going to be able to you know uh, manage myself with any kind of art art material so in a sense this this thing became uh, the tool became quite integral to the subject because it allowed me to go to places which was very crowded without being worried about how i'm going to manage the whole sketch yeah yeah that's an interesting point it's a bit of form follows function because uh, and i think about this very often like i tell people that uh, so i draw only with a fountain pen and sometimes with the fude nib to get line widths but that's it and a little sketchbook and my whole idea is this that i want to be able to be inconspicuous in busy places i don't want to stand out i don't want people to stop and stare and look at my palette uh, spread out before me and things like that so what that does is the corollary effect is that i am now sketching in places where a lot of people wouldn't sketch because they can't spread out their palettes and their whole set i can sketch in 5 minute gaps in places i can take out my sketchbook and one pen quickly and finish a sketch in time that people would think this is not enough time to even begin but i can be done so then that opens you up to subject matter that would not be accessible to you before Absolutely. and it opens you up to scenes that you think are interesting but they are fleeting scenes so now you're capturing transient moments that with color and with detail and things like that it's just it's too late you can't do it correct you know so i have always been very worried i mean i've always wanted to sketch these subjects and because i'm more of a watercolor person i've always been very worried about how do i approach it you know but this gives me a lot of freedom so does this inktober experience then kind of influence you in thinking about how you use your tools which tools you like to use for what reason did it change anything in you so uh, yes the the fact is that i i love that brush pen because i just feel like it dances almost on paper i also feel like you know if i'm actually my subject matter is people okay i find it easier to draw with the brush pen uh versus incorporating them you know in in a sort of a watercolor and then they move and all of that because you know i i just find it easier i mean it for me to sketch with the brush pen 
sketch a person with a brush pen barely takes any time. So in that sense, it doesn't make me feel insecure about the fact that, oh, now this person will move or something will change or, you know, any of that. So, yes, I have been sort of, you know, thinking about like, okay, you know, the, 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 the challenge is that sometimes I end up carrying too much material. Like, like maybe for you, it's simpler because you don't have to worry about color, right? Yeah. But for me, I'm always attracted to color. So the challenges with me is that, you know, do I want to work in color? Or do I want to work in, 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 you know, just limit my medium and work in something else? So on that day, then I have to just carry just that much so that I'm not distracted. Because I want yeah, to work like in the, the wealth of options will overwhelm the decision yes. fatigue almost. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, like, uh, so another thing that I uh, sometimes remark in my podcast is that we think about these uh, having more things and having more options is always a good thing. Like you have more choices. Choice is always good. And you being constrained is not good. But I like to think that there is a lot of freedom inside constraints. So if you have just the one tool with you and just the one thing, now you are not wasting your time thinking about my other tools or my other options or my other. Now you are thinking more deeply about how can I bring out the value of this tool. So you mentioned the brush pen and the way it flows on paper is so instinct, like it's so instinctive so that now if you use it the way it's supposed to be used, now you will trust your instincts around it and you will capture people very, very quickly. Whereas if you were using, if you were thinking about using color, then you would be concerned about shadows. You would be concerned about getting the shade right. And then you'll only sketch people who are stationary. Now you're not doing dynamic people because you're not being faithful to that idea of getting them down. Correct. So it's so much of the tools and reducing our options leads to more freedom. Now you have the freedom to sketch people walking by you in 30 seconds. Yes. And you, that would never have happened before. Yes. I think I also... Uh, have the freedom to sketch stories which is very important um, like uh, I think if I'm if I'm doing a watercolor a watercolor painting I am more focused on the painting aspect of it you know getting all the aspects of the painting right and I generally miss the story uh, but with this I think you know I'm able to then focus on storytelling which I realized during the reportage uh, that plays such an important role. And I realized that I miss that. You know, I don't always have to sketch in color. I, I, can, I can simply just, just sketch because there is something very interesting happening there. And I want to record that, that aspect versus looking at everything as a watercolor challenge, literally. Yeah, that's that's such a good point. Like, And sometimes this thing that strikes us is interesting. We don't explicitly know what the quote-unquote the magic in it is. But just if I follow this now and I make a quick drawing, hopefully in five minutes I'll understand why I made this drawing. And then it will make sense. Oh, this was what was really great about it. And I'm glad I got it down here. And then this, I love how that plays in. Like you were telling me about, so the some of the artisanal, artisan stories you were telling me, uh, you didn't have a plan before. You didn't know what like what you were going to ask them. So, so you got some amazing stories out, like the woodcarver himself, the how he works, how tremendously skilled he is. 
but that you didn't know before and you only found out because you were there on location giving it that time of yours and he noticed it he appreciated it and then he opened up to you before and even afterwards when you visited him again correct so so much of it is this kind of faith right like you don't know where the it's going to come from you just have to show up and hopefully the magic will all something will happen something good will suddenly come out of something just from the virtue of being there being ready to draw something and take it down yes and also i've been in this city for close to 21 years now and i uh, have i have always been in the those streets where these wood carvers work okay and they, their shops look lovely because there are these beautiful things hanging you know these wooden frames and stuff like that but to think that you can sketch there okay is just a a thought itself is a nightmare because these are so crowded that you can barely you know you can barely stand there and this time i was able to break that you know and i was i was able to be in these extremely crowded and more than the fact that you know um that that you may not find the place there more than that is the overwhelming response that you will get while you're sketching because there will be so many people surrounding you just you know hounding you and you know sometimes even coming and standing in front of you and the between you and the subject um and this time i think that i was able to break that and i was able to get out of that block and do the job that needed to be done so now i can actually look at more of these as subject matters yeah 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 and in a sense you could think that uh, so if somebody like when i asked that why didn't you do it in color the answer could be that it could not be done in color if you tried to do it in color you would not have captured these things yes it would have been a struggle for sure and i don't think i would have been able to capture uh, stuff with the speed at which i captured it with the pen you know so there were a lot of moments which required me to sketch very very fast you know especially the basket weavers i mean if it's going to take me an hour and a half to do one watercolor sketch uh, versus 20 minutes for a pen sketch uh, you know they would have probably finished doing what they were doing right and the conversation changes and your uh, thought process changes once you are uh, like getting into those details which the watercolor and that compositional uh, task would require of you then you're not you're not you're not getting like you mentioned you're not getting the story anymore you're just focusing on getting so many other variables right correct it's like the like the potter the potter was was generating or creating these little pots uh, every second every second or two seconds he had uh, he was making a small small little dia or a small little container and by the time i finished sketching his whole mound of clay was over you know so <laughs> he was like he was like a factory you know i don't think it would have been possible for me to to use color there or even plan this whole thing in color at all yeah yeah absolutely so it's such a good lesson to sometimes think of uh, what our tools enable us to do and also what they inhibit us from being able to do and then use you know using that 
making that decision a little more strategically, thinking more consciously about what we are trying to achieve here. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so, uh, Zainab, I really want to know uh, how did all this start for you? Like, how did this uh, interest in art come in? How did you decide to, when you were young, that you wanted to study this? And what what did you do? Like, how did how did this progress? So, to be very honest, I think my first uh, uh, my, my first discovery was in the in standard five in grade five, when I was to copy something from my uh, reader into my book. And I copied it very accurately. And uh, the teacher wrote fair. And I did that point, I didn't know what fair meant, you know, and I took the book back home. And my parents were like, what is fair? Is fair good? Or is fair just okay? So the next day, my parents were in the school to find out why was I given fair, you know, and the teacher said, it's brilliant, you know. Yeah, yeah. like a fair copy, yeah. I think that's the, yeah, so, yeah, 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 I was also thinking. <laughs> so she, she's like, you know, a kid at that age doesn't, doesn't copy so well. So that's when the alarm sort of went off with my dad, especially, and he's like, that's it, we're doing this. You know, so and I and now that I think of it, I feel like, yes, so many people basically start their journey, you know, or or think that, you know, they're good at art because they're making a good copy of something. You know, and. I don't know, I mean, that is really something that is worth thinking of, because now I think of art as self-expression you know, and so many different aspects, right? But at one point, for, imagine for, a, for, for parents and a child, it's just important for them to just know that, oh, my, my kid can draw, you know? And that was like, like a discovery for them. And they were like so happy that, oh, I can really be, I can be a, good, a person who can draw very well. And so they, they just found an art teacher for me. And uh, just consciously started pushing me towards exploring art. And over, over from grade five to grade 10, I think it became amply clear that I could copy very well, you know, because that challenge became, you know, uh, that challenge became easier for me every time. You know, every time I was to make a copy of an, of an image, and it used to largely be from from just simple stuff that we had around at that point, which was greeting cards, you know, some some Walt Disney stickers and stuff, things like that. You know, it's just it just started from there. And then I didn't even like usually people after grade 10 go and do 11 and 12. I didn't even do that. I just stayed straight away, went to art school. And... Uh, I, you know, I, I, I just started with art. That's it. How, how does that work? Like, I don't even know that this was a thing that happens. How, how does that go? At that point, yes, it did happen. Now, I think uh, schools are, are want you to finish your 12th and then come into art school. But at that point, they just needed your, your 10 standard grades. 
and they needed uh, they needed your like we had this drawing exam that had to be given in school which is called the elementary and the intermediate they just needed the intermediate grade just to know that you had done well in the drawing exam so i gave the intermediate twice till i got a b uh first i got a c and then i got a b and then the moment i got a b i'm like okay you know it, this this seems to suffice to get into a school and uh, yeah that was it wow so uh, tell me about what you studied in art school you uh, like you mentioned it's commercial art uh, so i'm curious to know what that means and what kind of education that is so co- widely known as applied art or commercial art it basically caters to that part of art which responds to the commercial aspect in terms of providing print design or you know working in advertising and stuff like that so that's what you're trained for versus fine art where you basically become a painter or you know a fine artist so that there were there were two faculties in the school one was fine art and one was applied art and i i chose applied art at that point mhm yeah and what what is that like what were the things that caught your interest what were some uh, th- skills that you learned that you know still stand out for you so uh, one of the very important things was basically just drawing right uh, and we just similarly like you know i i remember i had done a whole uh, a whole project based on uh, the fruit and vegetable market which was largely sketching on location even at that point right so all these skills i think just keep getting enhanced and a, a lot of these projects are basically you know eventually like in in your last year you're doing like a, a you know like a hypothetical series of advertisements or you know something in print or you need to choose a subject and then see it through in terms of you know how you would advertise for it what would you make as as you know uh, advertising material and stuff like that in terms of design and all of that so uh, the other thing is that there were there were also uh, areas where you could specialize in one of them was illustration one of them was photography and one of them was calligraphy and i had picked the illustrate illustration out of it so which which clearly required more drawing you know more understanding of environments more practice at that level and i used to love that to be honest i've always just loved sketching outdoors and i've loved doing live drawing i've loved doing you know i've loved doing all of those things because somewhere somewhere that whole aspect of copying also plays a role here you know that how accurately are you able to bring down on paper what you are seeing you know and again i feel over here somewhere i feel like do i sometimes really need to be that accurate and now i'm really consciously making an attempt to break that accuracy but because i've also been that perfectionist in a lot of ways i you know i've always felt like oh you know if this is not going to look like that then this is not a good sketch it's only now that i'm breaking out of that and saying okay this is fine as well right i'm thinking so later on and we'll come to this later again you would go on to do children's illustrations and then again you are simplifying the world like you can't be super accurate because that's not always aesthetically pleasing and it's not it's certainly not uh, to catch the attention of a young child you needed to be simplified you needed to be reduced to some essential 
components that click. So then again, you are translating. You're not just quote unquote copying. So what's in, uh, interesting to me is that when I was growing up, I was incidentally also really good at this, that I could look at a drawing or a picture or an illustration and I could copy it super well. And I grew up thinking that that is an inferior skill because I can't draw from imagination and copying though anybody can do copying, the copying is not a big deal. And I would tell myself, oh, I'm not good because I can only copy. That's all I'm doing. And it's interesting to hear you take a very different, uh, like take empowerment from the thing that sort of crippled me early on. And I used to think I'm no good. I'm just a copier. I think it's a journey. And yes, I've also felt like that in uh, many times where I feel like, oh, I just people just, just, you know, take a paper and they just sketch and then something comes out of that. And I've never been able to respond to a blank paper if I'm not looking at something else in front of me. And uh, yes, I've always also felt that, but I've also, I've also understood over a period of the past 29 years that I've spent simply doing what I'm doing is that now I can draw from imagination. Because I have, you know, been through the process and done so many different things that now it's not very difficult for me to imagine something and draw it, you know. You could, in a sense, you could say that imagination, drawing from imagination, you're copying from your mind because you're also picturizing it in your mind. And then maybe uh, what we learn from doing this is that we are better at building this mental picture that we then, quote unquote, copy. Yes, yes. Yes, that's interesting. Uh, you were talking about uh, doing uh, observational drawing and plein air drawings. And I was thinking, so you mentioned Sanskar Bharti also yes. in the things that influenced you. And I remember talking to Uma about it in an early episode. And she told me about how she got introduced to outdoor sketching through them. And I know nothing about this group or organization or what it is. So can you tell me a little bit about your involvement with them and what they do and what, what they are all about? So honestly, when I was in when I was in art school, I barely had any idea what it was all about. Okay, I just knew that there is a whole bunch of people who get together and they paint, and that itself mm -hmm. was a thrill for me. So I would join them every Sunday, and every Sunday would be a new location, and I just loved it. You know, I loved it because there were so many people with different skills. And uh, very coincidentally, after I heard the talk with Uma, I connected with her to ask her what year she went to the Sanskar Bharti sessions. And it turns out that we were there almost around the same time. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> we, she knows a lot of my classmates, but I don't, I don't remember bumping into her uh -huh. at that point. So, yeah, they were largely, and, and the thing also is that there were so many different people coming there and the joy of looking at other people work, you know, that is superb because, you know, you're just a student, you're still trying to crack certain things and you're learning from all of them. So for me, it was just that, it was just that outlet and that group, which prompted me to wake up every Sunday and move. It was pretty much like the urban sketcher of that time. Yeah, it sounds like a proto-urban sketching uh, chapter. Like, do they are they still around? Do they still they are, do these things? They are still around, yes. They are still around and there is a very active group in Bombay as well, in Mumbai as well, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Is, and is it local to Maharashtra? Because I, I don't know if I've heard about it anywhere else. I am not sure, maybe, yeah. Uh... Mm -hmm. 
and uh, so just uh, out of this i was thinking does like and this is just an idle thought does pune have like a culture of plein air and outdoor sketching and because you know you mentioned it and she uh, uma also did it and both of you were involved with sanskar bharati is it is there like a is this something uh, that happens around there yes yes absolutely yeah so the sanskar bharati used to be a very strong organization at that point okay and i don't know i don't know how active it is now in pune but uh, urban sketchers is just as active right uh, and the pune group is the strongest they have close to around 50 100 sketchers you know and around a very consistent group of sketchers who come every week so that culture in pune is way way stronger it's also because you know it's a smaller city you know you know in in mumbai this the city itself is so huge that uh, you know people prefer to go to areas which are closer to them versus travel like 45 minutes or an hour to get somewhere so after your uh, bachelor's degree uh, in this field then you uh, moved to animation so um, how did the how did this interest come in what uh, what time was it was it a, like was animation a very new exciting thing in india at that point what what moved you towards it how did you like how were your studies like and how did that go so i just knew that i didn't want to stay with applied art uh while i was in art school i used to do these little odd jobs here and there uh you know work for i worked for someone who used to do the comic strip in the newspaper i did a few print ads for him and i would do just whatever came my way and uh, i i certainly knew that i need to push and you know uh find a niche for myself because i didn't see myself i didn't see myself finding a finding a space for myself in applied art you know because i found it too repetitive i found that there were too many people doing the same thing and so i just happened to apply to the national institute of design and um, i thought okay like once i filled in the admission form and i got the call for admission i actually went there to take a look to see what they do and i saw someone uh, you know working on his film and i'm like this is it you know because i'd also applied to idc at that point in time and i'd also gotten into idc which is the industrial design center at iit pawai and they pretty much had uh, they they had animation but when i went to nid and i saw someone just doing animation i'm like i don't want to do everything and animation i think i just want to do animation because just the idea of making something move is so magical you know and i was like this is it i just want to do this i love this so what 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 skills did you learn there as an animation student were you able to choose a specialty and uh, what kind of things did you explore so for one the thing with the national institute of design is that there are so many faculties there right there is there there are people working in in furniture design product design ceramic apparel textile for me the thrill was to do everything i would go into the uh, into the woodworking studio and work with wood i would go to the ceramic studio and work with clay 
I would go and sew my own clothes. I would go and work in the textile studio. I would do everything. So for me, it was not just, you know, limited to animation. And with animation, I um, I just explored a whole lot of different mediums. So I, I did one film, which um, I worked on in clay under the camera. At that point, you know, the Oxbury camera was the thing. And, you know, you wanted to be there and shoot a film and all of that. I remember I spent close to a month standing, just, you know, molding the clay under the camera. And, uh, yeah, that and uh, I think the largest, the, 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 the most important skill, I think, was to be able to, to be able to get gesture in an inanimate object. You know, to be able to look at anything, anything that's inanimate and give it life. You know, and that again ties up with observation. Because I remember uh, we had this one workshop uh, conducted by David Shore, who had come from New York at that point. And he taught us gesture drawing. And that gesture drawing was so powerful, you know, that... It, for me, it was it was amazing. And the last part of that module was to take an inanimate object and tap into its gesture. And I had picked up these shoes that I found in the dustbin. Okay, because they were so worn out that they literally, they told a story. They, they, they had a life even though they were discarded. And I, I, I used that. And that's when I realized, you know, how much soul is there even in something that is either to be thrown away or, you know, has lived its life and is completely inanimate. Let's, let's talk about uh, then once you've graduated from NID and you started working in an animation studio. Uh, so animation has not quite taken off in India for various reasons. Like I think there's, a lot of popular misconceptions about who animation is meant for. There's a very, you know, very narrow understanding that animation is just for children. It's just light entertainment. It's not seriously good things or art even. And then, of course, there's so much paucity of the kind of funding that animation really needs in order to do really well. And I don't think that's put in. Um, tell me a little bit about the work you did at Animagic and what that experience was like. Where did you fit into this structure? of the different people who work on an animated film. And also maybe tell me a little bit about what is that structure? What, what are the different people? What kind of roles do they do? And how, do that, how does that all come together to make an animated film that we see? So um, for me, I, again, got very attracted to the fact that, uh, so the first film that we worked on was Raju and I. And uh, at that point, we were exploring uh, we were using uh, uh, the the paintings of Monet to uh, to take inspiration and create backgrounds, but we weren't working in oils; we were working in pastels. And for me, it was magical to involve myself in that whole uh, in that whole process of painting. Because again, for me, it's that environment, it's that atmosphere, it's that creation of what you see 
to be able to capture it, to capture the light, the subtleties, the shadows, all of that, which just really makes me feel very joyous, you know. So I just immediately started working, you know, or, you know, ideating on how, what sort of environments and how to work with color and stuff like that. So I used to love that. And uh, that uh, resulted in me doing the entire environment for, painting rather the all the backgrounds for the next film which we did which was mayor uh coming back to your first question uh we 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 had very few people on the team when we were working with these projects so uh there used to be one person who did all the you know who did who largely basically managed all the uh the the keyframes and stuff like that that there, there used to be a team of animators who would do the in-betweens there would be a group of uh, people working on the backgrounds and then there would be somebody just putting the whole thing together digitally and this uh, you you were mixing so uh, this so the product is digital but if you're working with pastels and in your other project also there were these watercolor backgrounds that were there this this mixing of traditional and digital media uh, so uh, what kind of inspirations did it come from this idea of looking at money and then getting backgrounds from that and uh, it's you know like i've seen anime that does that also for example japanese anime that has watercolor backgrounds in that yeah. so where does that inspiration come from and how does it integrate like what so i think the the two projects that i worked on and when i was there uh, they were like they were the projects that we basically used to try out everything that we wanted to. We've always been attracted to money. Okay. So the, the team, which was basically styling the film said, okay, you know, we want to try out money and we love money's paintings. Why don't we try clubbing it, you know, into our film? And of course it's not, you know, because you need to also have certain amount of, you know, there's a timeline, there's, there's, you know, certain amount of, uh, a, a good amount of work involved. You can't do everything, you know, with, with handwork, which is ideally what you'd like to do. So then of course there is some amount of, you know, taking the digital assistance, which comes in and it's of course easier and it's, it's, it's more uh, it's 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 more possible to manage with a larger team, you know, where someone's doing uh, someone's someone's doing the animation and then someone's just dropping in the colors and stuff like that. So you know that that process sort of. So the only place where you can actually play around is the backgrounds, where you can bring this whole aspect of you know uh, merging this whole aspect of art and uh, you know giving it giving it a life. So in the in the in the second film that you you probably seen which is which is mare like pronounced like the bleating of a goat uh, i used to because of all the watercolor that i did with you know with uh, with sanskar bharti and you know my general love for watercolor um that i w- i just felt like you know like every time uh, chetan who was the person who who drew the background you know used to give it to me for me it was like i would look at it and say like wow i'm gonna paint this now you know so and and you know the project was obviously it was uh, you know it was it, it didn't have too much of funding and stuff like that so we had to also do other projects in in between to sustain that project 
And every time we took a break, did something else, and then came back to these, I, I, I felt like, you know what, not working. Need to do this again. So I think I almost redid the entire set of backgrounds for that film. And in the process, <laughs> in the process, it was also like I was just so happy with myself because I was playing with watercolor and I was just doing exactly what I wanted to do. So I was like exceptionally happy. Yeah, that's that's so interesting how that works. In in studying animation and in uh, working at a studio, uh, did you also pick up any, or were you made to, or did you, out of your own interest, pick up any specific digital art skills, or were you sticking to traditional media the whole way? Yes, i i i did uh, I did learn Photoshop, and uh, yes, I did I did learn I did learn a, I mean, I basically learned a lot of Photoshop when I was interning during uh during design school and that helped me a lot that really helped me and that that i think over a period of time just being able to understand that has really helped me to to get the best of both you know to be able to work with hand and then just use the digital media to enhance it and uh you know be really be able to play around with it sometimes and you know, just be able to get get the best of whatever whatever is possible. Yeah, yeah. But uh, digital work is not something you pursue in your own uh, work anymore. Like, uh, you, it's not it's not home to you. Is that correct? Well, not necessarily. I I don't mind doing it. It's just that I do it in smaller quantities uh, because it doesn't really give me the thrill of working by hand. So. Uh, yeah, I have done several projects, which just and and especially during lockdown last year, you know, I did I colored an entire series of illustrations digitally because there was no there was no paper available. So <laughs> yeah, so it worked really well, and the drawings were hand drawn, and uh, you know, all I had to do was basically fill in the you know fill in the coloring and work worked beautifully. Right, and after this this phase of working with the animation studio, uh, was was switching to freelance work. Was it something that was something that was exciting for you, or was it something that was you know just you had to do it because of the circumstances? Uh, how how did how did you make this transition? It was very difficult for me because I couldn't imagine myself outside of that studio. I I didn't know what I would do by myself. And animation requires uh, your attention twenty four by seven. You know, you're you're thinking it, you're breathing it, you're doing everything. You know, you just need to give in a whole lot of time, and um, that was not possible for me. So I had to sort of, you know, I really had to sit down and think that okay, if if I am looking at just myself, what really are the skills that I have? on what is the kind of work that I enjoy that I would like to do, you know, if I'm just looking at working alone. And um, it was just one fine day that I just woke up and I was like, yes, it has to be illustration. And the thing is that I had no portfolio in children's books illustration. So I had, 
it was very difficult for me to tell someone and these films also had no you know they they had they we were not able to upload them on any kind of media because there were some certain copyright issues and stuff like that you know with the films the films have only gotten uploaded on uh, on youtube just very like like last year after a good 20 years after a good 20 years literally so there was really nothing i could show someone other than what i had done in probably art school which looked like which which was decent work but would not get me a job in a children's book and what i did then is i was like you know if i have to do some work which is just gratis or pro bono just to say that you know i'm going to just somehow develop or make a portfolio for myself so i i sort of put myself on all sorts of you know these these job hunting platforms like elance was there at that point and stuff like that and i said no matter what i have to write to three people every day you know i have to create three people who will need my services so i used to look you know and say okay today it's this three people if somebody just wanted a sample done somewhere like okay i'll do it for you and that's how i got my first break over elance in a children's book so i got one book to do then and then i had that one book to show someone and then i got like a whole bunch of books after that so at that point really because even i was new to children's books and i really had no confidence that you know would i even be able to uh, you know do what it what is required because i had no i had no idea nothing no expertise in that in that field i said okay let me just play around with texture and then just use photoshop to basically put all these textures together so i i put out some very basic work at that point and then it's only over a period of time as i got more challenging projects and you know i started working on my own skill and started getting you know a hang of what really needed to be done is when i also saw that okay now my works like sort of evolving slightly right. getting better yeah right and these skills are so diverse right like only some of these skills are about really technically the work that you're doing some of these skills are even like i'm thinking of work, working alone for example coming from a studio where um the delegation of tasks might be somebody else's responsibility thinking of the larger picture might be somebody else's responsibility how much work today how much tomorrow could be somebody else's responsibility to and then you just have to follow along to some extent but now you are setting all of those rules by yourself as a freelancer you are describing your day yourself you have to measure what is a so this was a challenge for me when i started freelancing that what is a good day how do i tell myself oh you did a good you did a good day's job today like what is it is it 8 hours if i work less than 8 hours is it bad is it uh, am i supposed to achieve something every day because how do you achieve something every single day that you feel like feeling good about uh, a job well done is so difficult because sometimes the payoffs are so far away you have to like going through three people every day that you're emailing and then not hearing back from every uh, the next day at all again and again and again you don't know when it will pay off if it will pay off you don't know if it's a good decision or a bad decision so what were some of these things that you had to kind of 
develop in yourself like the mental skills as well as so we'll come to the technical skills later just thinking about the mental skills of becoming a freelancer well one is discipline right because when you're working alone there is nobody to bounce ideas off and you're also i, I was working from home so it's home right you wake up you have some responsibility to be done in the house then work takes a back seat then you realize the day is over and then you go back to work in the night all stressed out i didn't do any work today so it was very difficult and you have two small children who need attention all the time you know there are so many other things that need need attending to in the house so just just getting that discipline and that consistency uh has been the most difficult thing for me and i think i have i have learned the hard way you know i i used to get a lot of projects and then somewhere in between i think you know my my i i couldn't keep up to deadlines and stuff like that and then i started losing projects and then i started really working on understanding what is it that is required you know and uh, i i realized that what is missing is consistency because i i love doing a whole lot of things you know i love sewing i love gardening i love cooking i love doing anything that excites me that day right and some days i may not feel like painting and that's how i used to approach it i used to approach it in a very uh, very student like manner you know like today i woke up i didn't feel like doing anything i just did something else you know it was a good day but i did something else but not not realizing that and or or just waiting for inspiration to strike like i have no inspiration today because you're alone right where does its inspiration come from so i think th- those were my biggest challenges and i think it's only about like about 5 or 6 years back that i realized that i cannot put myself everywhere i may love to do a certain kind of things which i can sometimes if i'm taking a break i can do those but i cannot put myself i cannot spread myself over so many things that i don't really you know get the value out of one thing and i also i think in you know in while i was experimenting with so many different things that were happening in my life i also realized that what really gives me the satisfaction and that peace of mind is to be able to draw and to be able to create it puts me in a vacuum you know when i am painting when i am drawing when i am doing something that i like to do then at that point i am in a vacuum which uh which nothing bothers me and once i have spent enough time in that vacuum and then i come out of that vacuum to deal with day to day things then day to day things are a breeze yeah yeah you're better able to like you're almost zen at yes, that time yes but if i haven't got that time then i am a wreck yeah that's such a that's such a good point like uh, so i'm thinking about how like there's this guilt inside me which uh, i have imbibed from my mother who also does a lot of freelance work as an as an as, as a person who makes clothes is that this inability to say no to something if somebody asks me to do something i cannot afford to lose that job or i can't afford to not do it i have to like even if i even if it doesn't you know fit my my skill set exactly oh i'll work on it and i'll do it and 
sometimes that's a there's a phase in which that's a good thing to just grab at whatever you can and just do it and then there's a phase where you have to like you said you have to be a little more strategic now what is it that you most enjoy doing which then becomes the thing that you can do for the longest amount of time and therefore it is something you will be better and better at so there are things that you aren't supposed to be even if you might like you know you might feel obligated almost to do them you have to learn how to kind of narrow your scope a little bit yes i i completely agree with that and i think like this this whole thing about not being able to say no is such a big thing with me you know because if somebody comes to me with an idea i'm like yeah i'm i'm on board you know without really realizing that am i really able to handle this you know so i have only realized again the hard way that uh, it's not possible to say yes to everything you know i i can take the time and think about it and see if it's really feasible uh, you know sometimes sometimes some projects don't pay so well and you're putting in so much time and energy into them just because you've said yes you know sometimes you've said yes because you you believed in an idea but actually there was no there, that that couldn't that couldn't be pushed you know to its maximum so you invested so much time in it and then you realize that oh you know that time's gone and this hasn't gone anywhere so i think all i think all of this is just a part of part of the learning experience you know i have over a period of time been able to really say okay this is manageable and this is not manageable you know i thankfully i have learned to say no very hes- very hesitantly but i have learned to say no i also realize now that just if i if i say no it doesn't mean i'm losing a project you know i am just being um, more uh, i i think uh, i i think it would be more reasonable with myself to say that you know this cannot be handled right now you know i just can't take everything on my plate and say okay i'll i'll figure out how to how to deal with it later i can only take as much as i can deal with i think it's almost it uh, becomes like you know a very desperate kind of sustenance when you think that if i lose it then what if i don't get something else yes but sometimes it's like you have to understand that you know it's all just like drawing right like if you're drawing a person to think that oh i can't draw this person because then i'll miss that person or that you just have to sometimes leave space and then let something come to you and it if you're there waiting something will come so you have to kind of make space for it in your life correct Uh, let's talk about the let's talk about the technical skills i'm really curious to know about that so when you started doing children's illustrations what were some of the technical skills that you already had that was suitable to this kind of work and what were the things that you were not uh, prepared for that you sort of learned on the job well for one i was i i already had the uh you know the skills of being able to create environments uh, uh do very animate looking drawings like literally very expressive looking drawings which you know to be able to 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 be able to and also because i had very little children at that point when i started and i could really observe these uh, you know these these 
these these fun moments and gestures and expressions and all of that and i i wanted to bring all of that into thing into into my work and i had no problem drawing people designing characters all of that was set i think what i really needed to work on was um uh, composition okay uh, better storytelling you know uh, simplifying like you mentioned i i i have the habit of putting in too much you know uh, drawing every little detail like the way it should be done uh, so that that all of those things i think all of all of those things have come into my work after i started sketching again you know so in the time that you know between you know between the the plein air work that i used to do and when i went to animation and then i i, I used to work i i had a full time job at an animation studio i had stopped this aspect of you know sketching outdoors or urban sketching as we now call it and i think that was really the that was really what was missing in my work because i also felt like over a period of time i started losing i started taking too much time on a drawing you know and then i realized that i'm taking too much time on a drawing because i am not observing enough and i'm not observing enough because i'm not drawing enough right yeah yeah i see what you mean it's sort of like uh, the the cost of a drawing right like the mental cost if i'm going to do this it's going to take so many hours and hours of time so therefore you don't like like we were just talking about how you can draw more if you just draw with one pen you don't think about the watercolor aspect of it suddenly you're filling more pages up because you don't have to worry about representing every single thing in every single way and it's lit. so how how did you discover outdoor sketching again how did that happen for you to be very honest uh, i have always okay and i'm like it's a record i've always walked out of my house with a sketchbook okay, okay and wow. always come back with an with a blank sketchbook <laughs> <laughs> because i have just not been able to sketch so what happened in 2017 uh was that stephanie bauer uh connected with the mumbai urban sketcher group and said uh i'd like to meet you know anyone who's available and it was a monday uh it just so happened that on mondays i teach at a graphic design school and exterior drawing or drawing outdoors is one of my subjects so uh i i looked up stephanie bauer because i had no idea who she was and her work looked amazing so i said okay Uh, why don't i uh, take my students there so i i asked her if she would be open to doing a demo for them and she said okay 45 minutes is what i can spare so i said all right and we all went there and i think she just got me started again because just the whole aspect of how do you position your subject onto paper is what i had forgotten you know every time i would start i would end up somewhere else and that was making me lose my confidence you know and the fear of the black paper but that that very step by step approach you know made me realize okay you know this is what i was missing i need to bring this back and um, 
just right after that, I made sure I was there at every Urban Sketcher meet after that, you know, just to keep working on it. It's incredible to me that you can have the fear of the blank page even after being involved in art all your life. It's, does it never go away? Like, I I actually have a whole bunch of sketchbooks like this whole this whole thing right i have a whole i have a whole drawer full of material full of art material waiting to get you know used one day right and when i used to walk out with that sketchbook i would walk out with anything one day i would walk out with a marker right and i just because i was i had no attachment to what sort of drawing should come on the paper but i knew that what I was drawing wasn't up to the mark or it's not something I really enjoyed. But I was still, I, I didn't understand what was missing. You know, I think what was missing is just the, it's just what I was seeing, I think. It was not about the drawing because it's not like I'd forgotten drawing. I had forgotten how to see or what to see. You know, I could go and I could look around and say, I don't know what to sketch. You know, and that was that was more scary than not being able to draw. I I was drawing every single day. It was not like I was not drawing, right? I was drawing every single day. But w- when I went out with a book, why is it that I came back with a black book? I, I didn't see, I mean, I and I spoke to so many friends and they were like, go out, you know, you will see something. You will like something. And then I started doing some very basic stuff. So I thought the Urban Sketcher meets were a good way to sort of break that, uh, break the ice with that because there were people doing so many different things, right? And it was so many things you had not looked at. And suddenly you realize that, oh, I could have looked at that or I could have looked at that. And so that's what got me started again. And that also, that that little fear that I had developed of, you know, just sitting alone by myself and sketching, I was able to overcome that. I mean, I was able to overcome that way faster than what, you know, I would have otherwise, because I was always used to the idea of sketching. It's just that I'd lost my touch. And suddenly I was in a new place and I was in you know, like, I was like, oh, you know, I'm, and, and, and responses that you see, that you hear from people around you can also be a little overwhelming, right? Because you are constantly worried when somebody's looking over your shoulder, because you don't know what's going to turn out in that sketch. Yeah, yeah. There's this, uh, so one aspect of it feels almost like uh, an obligation to be performative. Like, I have to be doing something that if somebody's watching, it should be worth their time and it has to be entertaining. In, like The process of putting it out has to be entertaining. So it can only work if I'm just possessed by my scene. It has to just absolutely click and I just go into the zone and that's the only way it can be interesting to someone. So I almost think that it loops in on itself. It becomes almost a fear of the fear of the blank page that... You don't want to be in a situation where you are wondering what to draw because surely nothing good can come from that situation. And that only comes if you go out to draw and you just look around. So it's better to not go out and to just look around because you'll have to confront that thing again of not knowing what do I draw. And 
do you think do you think a bit of it like how does it play because you, when you're working with you know very finished images when you're doing animation or professional illustration commercial art applied art you're dealing with very precisely finished art and then how you think about a sketchbook and how you think about a sketch is there a difference there that needed to be made in your mind that is quite um that is that is actually the i i don't look at it differently right i look at my sketch also as a finished piece and that is probably something sometimes i feel that's a good thing because a lot of people i i i see a lot of responses to that art and people feel like you know uh, they're overwhelmed because they they feel like you know there is a copy of something that they are seeing which is so lifelike but for me i feel like i don't know whether that's how i want it to be always or do i want more of a representational thing so there is this constant dialogue in my in my mind right but my skill or my training always takes me back to that very finished piece you know so i i would feel very unsettled if i left something undone yeah but so like i agree with you like i also think of my sketches as finished pieces like i don't think of them as incomplete or they lack something or you know if i was doing this in a studio on a canvas then i would do it x more number of steps and then it would be finished i don't think like that but i guess it's is there a recalibration of what finished means uh when you go out to sketch and now you know you know in one hour i'm going to have a finished drawing a finished piece so like for example i'll talk about myself like sometimes i'll i i used to make a lot of comics before so they would have color they would have full composition everything you know all the details but now when i'm sketching i leave a lot of things out so if i'm sketching human activity i don't draw sh- shoes and feet because i'm not good at drawing them so either i'll fo- their legs are folded or their the legs are dropping to below the page or i just didn't draw the feet and nobody notices and i kind of pull their attention away by having a lot of detail in other parts of the page and then i also feel free to leave out other sections that i'm i don't care for so i just very impulsively do that so it's a finished drawing but it's a finished sketch but it's not a finished uh scene in some in another way of looking at it like another artist in my place would draw that window behind them and then all the other windows behind them so in that sense do you think like was there a difference that needed to be made for you like did you have to give yourself some kind of permission you know to start drawing on sketchbooks when you were outside in that sense i think that this whole series of black and white illustrations that i've done had have worked beautifully to eliminate because you see if you're working with just stark black and white you cannot possibly include everything okay if you try to work from end to end you will end up with a mess okay because the at least the large masses of black because if i'm using too much of black it can just completely distract from the subject so this this i think that the purpose with which i started the black and white series was purely to look at composition and i think that after that 31 days of inktober when that series got done i actually really realized how many unnecessary things i am putting into a sketch you know when i can when i can just tell the story with minimum 
yeah yeah i that's exactly it that's what i was shooting for so a part of it uh, so i because i studied as an engineer and as a mechanical engineer you're always thinking about minimizing what you are doing because you want to achieve maximum with minimum effort that is good design so i mentally think about it like that as well like i can add this information i can draw the windows of all the buildings behind this person but is that going to help the drawing or is it going to distract from the point of this drawing and if it distracts from it it's uh negative work it it took my time it took my effort i'm doing it but it actually reduced the value of my page so that's also like and then that's so, such a personality based thing so there's so much of you know the artist coming out like what is it that's important to you is this important to your piece then you do it if it's not then what does that say about you and that comes out on the page and like you mentioned i love this aspect about urban sketches groups that you see people from such different places and therefore you get to see like even if they're sitting side by side that they're drawing completely different things and completely different styles and what did they see here that oh i can also see that oh this also has value i didn't think this was valuable right like so uh, tell me a little bit about the uh, mumbai group for example like uh, is is it a big group how diverse is it and what what is the advantage of seeing that kind of diversity in the group uh so the mumbai group is fairly large uh but we because like i said you know mumbai is a large city and we you know it's not very easy to travel from one end to the other every sunday we don't really see too much of too many numbers unless we have like a you know special location or stuff like that but when we do yes we see a lot of uh you know uh, uh, just a lot of variety and uh, it's interesting because we we recently did a a project with dadar parsi colony which is uh, you know they wanted they wanted the whole colony sort of documented and uh, between mumbai navi mumbai and pune we won 90 sketches on that day yes we won 90 sketches in that area on that day and it was just an amazing experience because all these people came together and the kind of work that came out was just absolutely stunning and there were people like you know i could do one sketch somebody did five sketches because they just worked in you know in black and white just somebody did line drawing somebody just captured a window detail i mean there was just there was just so much variety it was it was absolutely amazing um i also noticed during uh, lockdown times there were some uh, instagram live sessions and uh, i think the usk mumbai group was talking about how so especially with reference to the parsi colony you're talking about like how uh, urban sketching can then be used to document a city or to document its history and uh, there were some collaborations with her- local heritage walks as well yes so uh i i can you tell me a little bit about that like how if you're an urban sketcher in any city anybody who's listening like how is it how can urban sketching help them to understand their city a little more in this way what did what did the mumbai group do in this so for one i think that you know the city is it's a very dynamic city it's constantly going through changes right and there are the other part of this city is that there are so many things you know there are so many things which can be documented um so in, in that sense i think every sketch in some way is a documentation 
right? Uh, we we look at heritage as you know largely look at heritage as all this Victorian architecture that we see and the fort area and stuff like that is what we we usually term as the heritage precinct, right? But there are so many other things. Like there is a fast redevelopment uh, with, you know, old old buildings are just coming down because they've lived their life and uh, they're gone. They, they just had such beautiful details on them. You know, uh, it's just it's just amazing. So I think in that sense, if you're actually uh, sketching, you know, you there is so much that you can get from your city onto paper, which is purely just just recording, like with the metro coming in. You know, with the metro coming in, there have been so many changes. You know, there have been so many changes in in the way the city is even looking right now. You know, and all these can actually become a part of documentation at some point. So if if there if there are sketches now, you know, fifty years later they will be looked at documentation as looked at as documentation because things would have changed again. So I think that everything that you're sketching is actually a documentation in some way. Yeah, that's a good point. Like even with something so sudden, like like the impact of COVID. So many things that were a certain way before are never going to be the same way afterwards. And something somebody might have drawn innocuously is now changed forever. That thing doesn't happen anymore at all. Uh, what What is it like to uh, sketch in a busy city? Like, So you're sketching in one of the busiest cities in the world. And um, a lot of people... You know, uh, I used to be very nervous about this. I'm still to some extent nervous about sketching alone in a big crowd. If I'm with other sketchers, I'm a little more comfortable to do that. But uh, a lot of people are nervous about sketching in busy places or sketching in big cities. So what is this experience like for you to sketch in a place like Mumbai? It is. So if I'm going out with a group, when I'm going out with uh, with the Urban Sketcher group, I'm I'm not that worried. Because there are many more people and we'll work our way around, right? But when I'm alone, it's like every single time I step out of my house, I'm just a little fearful. You know, will I be able to do it? Will I be able to find a spot to sit? Will I, you know, will I be able to find something to sketch? So that that always, like I always begin, you know, with that. But I just realized that it is nothing but the fear of the mind. Because when you are out there, when you are out there, you are in a different zone, you know. And when you come back, if you spend two hours sketching somewhere else, your day is already complete, you know, because you are you've just come back feeling fulfilled. So, yes, that that initial fear I feel just has to be overcome every time. Even for me, I just have to overcome it every time. Otherwise, I just sort of tell myself, okay, you know, if I don't find, if I feel like I don't want to get out of the car, I can sit in the car and sketch. You know, I I give myself these little reasons which will, you know, push me out of the house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I completely, like, uh, I absolutely agree with this part that, you know, the fear lasts only until you put the pen to the paper. From that moment onwards, it's gone. It's just and everything leading up to that moment is 
you have thoughts and second thoughts and further about uh, here or there or how or should I, shouldn't I. Um, so um, about like, uh, what was I going to ask? So about this, this fear then, like the, so when you're out in a group with uh, the Urban Sketchers Mumbai group, for example, so uh, do you, do you go to uh, like controlled locations? Like, do you go to places where you can like in a large group sit together? Does it sort of uh, like, you know, can you meet at a random street intersection or do you have to meet at specific monuments and locations and, you know, places with a lot of open space? No, I don't think anything of that sort, because the thing is that even if, even if there are a lot of people sketching, I, I feel after the first five minutes, you don't see anyone. Because everyone finds their little corner, little spot somewhere and everyone's just disappeared, literally. And then they just all come back again. So even if the place is really crowded, you barely, uh, you know, it, it's barely in your face. Like that the fact that you're sketching is not, it's not so much of a hindrance. And uh, like, like I told you, with 90 sketchers, yes, we could see, like there were some pockets where there were more sketchers sketching. But honestly, these 90 people just disappeared. And then it's only when they came back with all their work is when we actually saw them, right? So so I don't think that the, that part is such a problem. Yes, uh, what what the reason why we sometimes cannot just meet at a random intersection is because I think to have a location or a landmark where people can meet is just important to for for coordination you know just when and once that is done then you're free to basically move around wherever and then come back again so i think just that that initial coordination sometimes becomes tricky because of which you know i if there if the if the space is closed like if i say okay i'm meeting at such and such place then i don't want to leave too many options of where that sketcher can find me because everyone wants to come and meet that one other sketcher and want to sketch together, even if they're sitting, you know, uh, 10 feet apart, just the fact that there are more people sketching with me makes you feel, makes you feel secure. Right, 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 right. Yeah. That's, that's such a, that's a very important point, actually. Um, do you, uh, yeah. So I was thinking about uh, this reportage experience again of yours the the spirit of mumbai that you captured are, are there any other further plans you have with this uh are you going to take it like these these stories seem so useful to me so incredible to me and i would hate to see them just become only an instagram post like something needs to happen of them have you have you thought in this way like is there do you want to represent them in another medium perhaps or share them in some other format uh, yes, I would love to. I I don't know how yet. Uh, but yes, I I do want to. I I do want these stories to reach more people. You know, just this whole thing about you know going local. You know, which or 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 the made in India aspect, which you know everyone's talking about. I think it's not just about using India like a factory setup where people come from outside and make in India. I think there is, we, are, we just have so many of our own people doing some spectacular work. And I think that's what Made in India is all about. 
you know we we don't want to just so and these people their livelihood is threatened so i definitely want an avenue where you know this these stories reach out to more people so that people really see the value so that there can be collaborations you know with with these absolutely uh, skilled people this sort of skill is is very is very difficult to find you know i i would love it if if my reportage went out and made more people aware and and made more people think of what are the different ways in which we can work with these people yeah that's so true a, a lot of people i feel they get stuck in an exploitative cycle like you mentioned about i think was it the people who the potters maybe that their products are sold to five star hotels who use them and they serve fancy desserts and things on them and i was just thinking what must be the markup there like what did they buy that earthenware for and then what is the product that they are selling it as what is the cost of that product and how much how much does the person who actually crafted the product lose out on and how do you break this cycle like there's such a big disparity there and people are just locked into it and this potential then remains untapped like if there was more money in it then the reaction of their children thinking that oh i want a corporate job that reaction would not be so strong because there's money here there is more than just the money you know there's this thing uh, i was reading about recently like there is this dignity to it like people have to feel that they are valued not just m- money is a money is like one medium in which you can perceive value but also just the respect you get for a work is it's money sort of enables you to almost achieve that next level of respect or knowing that your potential is being recognized or being appreciated it has money is often the way we kind of express it but it's not the only way and sometimes that all of that is just locked in this exploitation that you just have to do this nameless work for hours and hours and hours and not feel the appreciation that you are owed see in a lot of ways i think like you know when we think of a potter okay how even in our even in our early education how are we looking at a potter are we looking at a potter as an artisan or a craftsman whose craft is you know something that you really need to aspire for or are we just looking at him as somebody who you just see on a day to day basis because then it that changes it right so if you want to tell the new generation uh that you know this is the kind of work a potter is capable of doing you need to change that very initial impression of a potter that you create right you yeah. know yeah. where in all our textbooks in all our early education what do you see a potter as you see a potter as a poor person who's basically giving you a pot a laborer yes so where is that respect coming you know that that respect is not that basis of that respect for that craft is not there but actually if you see you know it's 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 an ex- exceptional skill to be able to work on the um, on the wheel and to be able to come come out with such kind of absolutely perfect pieces right in a similar manner when people are looking at hold, hosting an event 
they are just looking at how good is this pot going to look here, right? How many people are really thinking about the potter? Which is why, which is why that pot could get replaced with a plastic container because of that plastic container could look equally good and nobody then cares about the potter anymore. So I think that the, just that awareness and, and also the fact that our children need to be able to work with their hands, which is getting, you know, taken over now by computers and things like that, where fewer and fewer children work with their hands, you know, to understand really the value of creating something. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point. You know, we denigrate the people who do this as people who have to do this. And there is more value given to like, this is just a persistent thing in society that there is more value given to not needing to do things. Like we don't really value being able to do things as much as we value having the money to give somebody else to do it for you. Like, why would you want to do things when you can be rich enough to not do things? And that's such a lopsided understanding of like, why, why do you, why are you like, what, what is the point? Like, is the point to not be able to do things and have wealth so others do it for you? And it's, it's this complete upside down understanding, like the things that we should cherish, skill, talent, craft, those things are undervalued because even if I think about something like engineering studies, for example, like you mentioned make in India, India has so much manufacturing potential and so much need and all of it will be realized by people who make things who are even as engineers are involved in the making of things. So it's people like industrial engineers, mechanical engineers, electrical engineers. And those are the ones who are at the bottom of the engineering pyramid, because what do you want to be? You want to be a computer engineer because a computer engineer sits at a computer in an air conditioned room and types. That's the popular image. So you don't have to work with your hands. You don't have to be in hot, sweaty places and those things are less valued. Those things are less good. You are, if you are good enough, then you will not need to do those things. And it's such an upside down way of looking. Yes. So uh, thank you, Zenab. This was such a lovely conversation. I've learned so many things from you. And I'm, I love that we agree on uh, the things that we agree on. And I really, really wish to see more happen out of this spirit of you know, Mumbai project that you took on. And I'll share some links with you about someone that I saw doing something interesting along this line. Maybe as a fellow animator, you'll really enjoy their work. But thank you for giving me your time. Thank you for this conversation. And thank you especially for the wonderful reportage project that you put together. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and that it was useful to you in some way as well. If you wish to support this show and the work that I do, please find the link in the show notes and buy me a coffee. It's a simple gesture which connects listener to creator and allows us to support and encourage independent content on this big bad internet. I now offer various membership deals to regular listeners that come with exclusive privileges. More details about that on my buy me a coffee page as well. I speak about sneaky art, these podcast conversations, and share thoughts from my journey of self-education to be an artist on a free weekly newsletter. 
You can subscribe to it by clicking the link in the show notes or by visiting my website, sneakyartist.com. We even have a Facebook group for this podcast where I share teasers of upcoming episodes and we discuss key moments from the conversations that I have. Join that to participate if that's of interest to you using the link in the show notes. Thank you for listening and I'll see you soon with a new episode.